Hey everyone, welcome to this week's bonus episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. Well, I'm super excited for this week's bonus episode because I decided to ask my followers on Instagram, and I'm Amateur Gourmet on Instagram, in case you don't follow me there, if they had any questions that I could answer on this week's episode for a Q&A special episode. So that's what I'm going to do today going to answer everyone's cooking questions and I got a lot of them from all over the world and if you'd like to submit a question for a future episode you can either follow me on Instagram again I'm at amateur gourmet or you could shoot me an email at lunchtherapist at gmail.com okay so let's get started here's my first question from Zara in Bellingham how often do you practice recipes that you don't nail on the first try well I was thinking about this um before I started because the truth is like now I don't really cook things if I don't generally have some sense of how they're going to go. And so it's not so much that I don't nail them on the first try, but it's usually that they don't come out exactly how I want them to come out. Like for example, the other night I was making a chicken breast. You might've seen this on my Instagram um, and it had skin on, but I was trying to be healthy. So I decided to bake it and I didn't like the way the skin was looking. So I put the broiler on thinking that broiling it would crisp up the skin and make it, you know, a little bit crunchier and and crisper. But instead, it sort of just turned it black, not black, turned it dark brown, but didn't actually render all of the skin the way that it would on a stovetop. So the next time that I cook a chicken breast with the skin on and the bone in, I'm going to start it in a skillet, which is how I normally do it, with a little olive oil, skin side down on medium heat until the the fat in the skin renders and it gets golden, deep golden brown, and then I can flip it over and finish it in the oven. But that's just one example. Um, but, you know, usually if I screw up on something, like a great example uh, would probably be my pasta water. You know, I'd say at the beginning of my cooking career, which was back in 2004, I was reading so many books and watching so many cooking shows where they would extol you to salt your pasta water extremely well. It should taste like the ocean. And so over the years, I took that very seriously and I would like dump salt into my pasta water. And only when I cooked for my in-laws did I realize, because they were eating it with like faces that looked like they were in, in pain when I made this one pasta dish, that I was maybe salting my water with too heavy a hand. And so now when I salt my water, I I learned this from Scott Conant, who I hosted an event with at the LA Festival of Books. He says to salt your pasta water so it tastes like good broth, which is very different from the ocean. You know, the ocean is almost like undrinkable water, whereas seasoning your pasta water so it tastes like broth, it should be pleasant to take a spoonful and put it in your mouth. So that's what I do. And that's a lesson I learned just from making pasta over and over again. So those are just two examples. Okay, next question. Modest from Chicago wants to know if I have any tips on cooking duck breasts, also good fall accompaniments for duck. Well, I'm so glad you asked this because duck breasts are one of the most rewarding things that you can possibly cook. I first learned how to make duck breasts um, when I was writing my cookbook, Secrets of the Best Chefs, still available on Amazon or wherever you buy books, um, where I cooked with a bunch of different chefs. And for that book, I cooked with Melissa Clark of the New York Times. And she taught me a technique for duck breast that I also use for chicken breast. And it's an incredible technique. So let me tell you what you do. So a duck breast, when you get it, comes layered in fat. It has a big, thick layering of fat on it. And so what you want to do when you get it is you want to score it in a diamond pattern. So you take a sharp knife and you cut diagonal across it in layers 
um, and go across and you don't want to penetrate the meat. You only want to go through the fat. And the reason you're doing this is to help the fat render. And then you go back the other direction, knife, you know, 90 degrees the other way. I'm not sure. I'm not good at math. But you basically want to make it should look like diamonds across the top of your um, duck breast. And then you take that duck breast and you put it in a cold skillet breast side down. A metal skillet is great because you want to build up a fond which is the brown bits at the bottom of the pan, and then you heat it on medium. You don't want it to go too fast because then it will the fat will render, render too quickly and you might not get a crispy skin. So do it on medium. You'll see as it starts to sizzle and crackle, fat will come pouring out. And I know that sounds disgusting if you're watching your weight, but the thing is you can dump out that pork, the duck fat and fry potatoes in it later. It's incredible. Duck fat is one of the most prized things a chef can have. So you render, render, render that duck breast until you have a golden, beautiful, crispy skin, and then you can flip it over and finish it in the oven. I forget the temperature you want to reach, but just Google any duck breast recipe and you'll see a temperature. And then the cool part of Melissa's recipe is that you then pour out the fat and then into that pan, she threw in some cherries, actual beautiful fresh cherries, not the ones in a jar. And she deglazed it with balsamic vinegar, and it was so delicious. So it was sort of like cherries and duck and balsamic, and it was delicious. And the other things that you could do with that, though, so she said you can do this with any fruit. So I've done that with chicken breast and then added grapes are a great possibility, especially in the fall. Yes, for a fall accompaniment. I bet if you got Concord grapes, which are the really beautiful dark purple grapes you can get at the farmer's market, they sort of taste like purple gum. If you got those and seeded them, because they have seeds in the middle, and then put them in the skillet where the duck was, and then added a little splash of balsamic and maybe a little chicken stock and deglazed it, that would be so good. But basically, the premise is sear the duck breast until all the fat renders, pour out the fat, get the skin golden, finish it. You could probably finish it on the stovetop, flip it over, and then take its temperature, remove it, and then in that skillet where you have all these brown bits now, you add your fruit and then... Um, a little liquid to deglaze it, hopefully something acidic like balsamic vinegar. Okay, well, now I'm hungry. Oh, and a little butter too. Yeah, you have to add a little butter with the balsamic. It makes a sauce. It's very French. Okay, next question. Michael from LA wants to know, why the F did you never own a microwave oven before? And Fabian from Windhoek wants to know why I resisted microwaves for so long. So they're asking this because on Instagram this week and on Twitter, I announced that I'm finally going to get a microwave. And I have basically for my entire adult life, since I lived at home at age 18 and I'm now 41, I have not had a microwave. I think it's because when I first started cooking, it was sort of like taboo almost in the like food world. If you were like reading fancy cookbooks or MFK Fisher or Ruth Reichel or all those things I was reading. Um, that microwaves were sort of frowned upon and looked down upon as sort of, you know, not very food food centric. Or I've got, I guess like the snobbery. I'm not just making up the snobbery. I guess it was seen almost as like part of the nuclear age, like that it was like this futuristic device that that kind of kept you apart from your food. And you know, someone like Alice Waters would famously never heat up her food in the microwave. Um, and so I would say the reason I personally over the years never got one was that I enjoyed being in control of my heat source and altering the amount of heat I was unleashing on something as I cooked it. So, you know, for me, I love a gas-powered stove. I love seeing that flame. So if I'm cooking, you know, chicken breast, if I'm cooking a duck breast like we just talked about, if I'm sautéing vegetables, I love seeing that flame. And then I can kind of interact with the... um, 
with the stove as I'm cooking, you know, it's like, oh, that's too hot, lower it. With, um, you know, microwave, it feels like it turns food to mush. It doesn't feel like it gets the textures, the caramelization that you want when you cook. Like I love to broil, even though I broiled a chicken breast badly the other day, I still love to crank something under the direct heat, the flame, to get that color. But the reason I'm getting a microwave now is because, frankly, like my husband, Craig, often is sad to eat cold leftovers and he loves leftovers and I can eat leftovers out of the fridge cold like I can eat cold pasta and I can eat cold you know if there's like um whatever I I don't know chicken breast or just leftover chicken I'll just pull it off and dip it into mustard and I'm perfectly happy but now I'm at an age or I'm at a moment in my life especially after quarantine where I'm like but why not have hot leftovers (laughs) like why would that be bad to have like delicious takeout from the night before and heat it up in a bowl so it's warm again Um, and I know people have told me or in the comments of my Instagram you could also heat up coffee that way you could heat up it's a great way to melt chocolate it's a great way to soften butter and now now David Chang is coming out with a whole cookbook of microwave recipes Um, and so I'm sort of rethinking the microwave so I just bought one using wire cutters recommendation for a Toshiba microwave and it was like a hundred $120. I mean, you know, for $120, it's a huge device that's going to sit on our counter and we're going to probably use it all the time. So I'm excited. Hopefully it's not going to change my cooking too much, but I'm excited to like soften potatoes in there. The idea of cooking rice in there sounds amazing, even though I have a rice cooker. Um, So we'll see. Follow my adventures at amateurgourmet.com. Okay. Carrie from Florida wants to know, Florida, I should say, where that's where I'm from. Where do you draw inspiration from to keep things that you cook interesting? Well, the short answer to that is television. I mean, I watch cooking shows on the regular. I love watching food TV in the afternoons when I'm burnt out from writing. I can take a, I call it my PBS cooking show nap. It's one of the best naps you can have. But now that I have Pluto, which is the app you can get for your TV where you can watch Julia Child 24 hours a day because there's a Julia Child channel. Now I'll watch Julia Child in the afternoons. But basically my PBS cooking show favorites have always been America's Test Kitchen, Cook's Country, Lydia Bastianich, Patty Jinich. Those ones are incredible. And I, I basically will like lay on the couch at like five or six before I cook dinner and watch a show like that. And almost always it will get me excited to cook something or to do something differently. In fact, if you looked at my Instagram, this feels like a huge commercial for my Instagram, but if you looked at it this week, you'll, or even read my newsletter, it's also a commercial for my newsletter, um, you'll have seen that I cooked salmon in an entirely different way, and it's a game changer, and I learned that from watching America's Test Kitchen. And basically, the concept is that you take your salmon, skin on, that's important, you season it with salt and pepper, and then in a skillet, you basically sprinkle in a bunch of kosher salt and then you put the salmon in skin side down on in the cold skillet and you crank up the heat to medium this is very similar to the duck breast because basically you're rendering the fat in the salmon skin so it's basically a way to cook salmon without adding olive oil or butter you just cook it using the fat from the skin you slowly render it out and when it's crispy and golden brown on that side you flip it over and cook the other side in the rendered fat which is genius and I never would have come up with that but I got it from watching PBS cooking shows and I also um did I mention Lydia Bastianich I do watch her although it's sad because now I've canceled cable and I got Hulu plus is that what it's called with live so I can watch Hulu live um and it has some of that but it I also have the PBS app 
And the PBS app has America's Test Kitchen, Cook's Country, but it doesn't have new episodes of Lydia, so I don't know how to watch it, and I'm very sad. I also subscribe to Bon Appetit magazine. I also read a bunch of food blogs still. I read Smitten Kitchen. I read David Leibovitz. I read um, Louisa Weiss's food blog, Berlin Kitchen. Um, I read Eater, which doesn't really have recipes, although now they do have recipes. I read the New York Times food section. I read the LA Times food section where my friend Ben Mims is always writing. Um, so I just, oh, and the Guardian food section is incredible. That, that has Nigel Slater, Otto Lenghi. So I just read a lot of food stuff. I watch a lot of food stuff. And then the other thing is I eat out as much as I can. So, you know, we're going to a new restaurant this weekend. We're going to Agnes in Pasadena. Last week I went to Pie and Burger in Pasadena and I had the most delicious burger, which I could probably recreate at home. It was a simple bun toasted in butter. It was a patty that was sort of like a smash burger, which I've done at home. And then it had folded iceberg lettuce and a delicious burger sauce. So yeah, I get inspiration from wherever I go. Okay, next question. Judy from Santa Cruz wants to know, what are Craig's favorite meals that you make? Craig loves my roast chicken, and I, that's, my, that's basically a Thomas Keller recipe, but I tweaked it over the years to come full circle to the first question, which asked, do I screw up? So it's not so much that I screwed up over the years. It's more that I just refined my roast chicken. And, you know, Thomas Keller has used six tablespoons of butter. I've sometimes used a whole stick. Thomas Keller sort of says, like, cut butter and put it on the chicken, but I having seen Ludo Lefebvre do this on his Instagram, now soften the butter and I slather the chicken in butter. So basically, this recipe is an incredible recipe. If you've never made Thomas Keller's roast chicken, just go to my blog, though. Go go to Amateur Gourmet and look up. I have a post called My Roast Chicken Secrets Revealed. Just search that. And basically what I do is I take um, my cast iron skillet, a large cast iron skillet, and at the bottom of the skillet, I put a bunch of root vegetables. So I'll do small red potatoes. I'll do rutabaga, turnips, carrots, parsnips, a whole onion cut into quarters, and then a few cloves of garlic. You glug in a little vegetable oil. That's just so because it has a higher smoke point so it can get the vegetables cooked faster or more car- get them more caramelized than if you used olive oil. I season it with salt and pepper, and then I take the chicken. I usually do like a three and a half to four pound chicken. I try to get a Jidori chicken at the grocery store because that sounds fancy, although my butcher sells Mary's chicken, which is great. I pat it very dry. I season the cavity with salt and pepper. I stuff the cavity with fresh thyme and garlic and sometimes a lemon. Then I truss it, and Thomas Keller has the easiest way of trussing. You basically just take butcher's twine, you put it at the back of the breast, you pull it forward, and then you tie the legs together. It's hard to describe that over a podcast, so just look at my post. But then I season... No, I'm sorry. I rub the outside with vegetable oil. This is the thing. With the Thomas Keller method, you double fat it. So you rub it a little bit with vegetable oil. Again, that's for the high smoke point, and I think it helps it get color. But then I do the Ludo Lefebvre thing, and I slather it with butter. And this may sound excessive, but what happens is the butter melts into the vegetables and coats them. And they get caramelized and buttery and you get the drippings from the thyme and the garlic and lemon. And the and then you put salt and pepper all over the chicken. You really be generous. And then you pop that. I pop that into a 475 oven. And I let it go for about 20 to 30 minutes until the chicken is really starting to brown. And then I'll lower it to 450 to 425. And then I keep roasting 
until the chicken looks like the cover of a magazine. And the butter, I think it's the butter that gets it that golden, beautiful, bronzed brown. And I mean, it's so gorgeous and it makes the house smell so good. Uh, And Craig will walk through the door and see this roast chicken cooking and he'll feel like he's in like, you know, Life magazine or a Norman Rockwell painting with two gay men. Um, And then the secret is though, so then when the chicken is done, you take its temperature with a thermometer. You want it to be basically around like 165 in the dark meat or like 170 in the dark meat. And then you lift the chicken off, you put it on a plate to rest for at least 10 to 15 minutes. So the juices go back in and your pan will be filled with fat. So my first piece of advice is with an oven mitt, very carefully pour out that fat. You could save it, but I don't. And then you have your vegetables, which will mostly be caramelized, but I like to stir them together, put them back in the oven until all of them get deeply caramelized. And then when they come back out, I will season them again if they need it, and I'll squeeze a lemon over it. Then I carve the chicken, serve it with grainy mustard. I am getting so hungry describing this right now. I can't tell you because I'm on a diet right now. If you listen to last week's episode, you'll remember my mom was giving me advice about dieting well this week i've been so good chicken breast i had the skin but i pulled it off Uh, last night we had scallops and string beans tonight we're having salmon and brussels sprouts but now all i want is roast chicken so thanks a lot judy from santa cruz okay carolyn from vancouver says help i can't cook pancakes or latkes without burning them well carolyn from vancouver my advice is to control the heat you know it's it's, it's all about watch, watching the heat and, you know, if you burn your first pancake, um, you know, that's okay. You know, the first pancake is kind of like a, a famous expression, like, you know, usually the firstborn child, which I am, is the first pancake in the sense that you screw up the first one and then the next time around you do better. So make your first pancake, make your first latke. If it comes out burned, lower the heat. It's okay. Add a little more fat and then add the next one and then... It's better to cook it slow the next time around and let it get caramelized that way. You know, the thing with a pancake is you need to have enough fat in the pan. And if you're cooking it gently, some people even say to cook it on like low to medium heat. Um, you just wait for bubbles to appear on the surface and then you flip it over. As for latkes, I've made 400 to 500 latkes for parties before. And I usually have like three to four cast iron skillets going at the same time. The secret there is you glug in the oil. It's the festival of lights and it's all about the oil because the miracle of Hanukkah is the oil lasted eight days. So be generous with your oil, get it hot. It should sizzle when you add your potato pancake. And if for some reason, it's getting burned. It's probably because you left it in there too long on that one side. So then just keep an eye on it. Keep, you know, use your metal spatula to lift it up. Look at what's happening and then flip it over. If you keep an eye on it, you should be fine. Um, okay. So um, Claire in Ireland, oh, I'm sorry, Stephanie from Pittsburgh wants to know, does marinating chicken in buttermilk really tenderize it? Absolutely, it does. You know, I when I fry chicken now, I always marinate it in buttermilk the night before. I actually add some hot sauce to it too. The thing about buttermilk is it's not it's acidic, but it's not as acidic as like lemon juice or vinegar. So what's happening is that it's basically penetrating the meat um, slowly with whatever you flavor it with. So if there's salt and pepper on the chicken, and then you have some hot sauce in there, or maybe garlic, it gets in there, but then it's gently tenderizes the meat. So it's not going to, you know, stiffen up the meat. It's just going to kind of get in there and break things down a little. And I think buttermilk has its own great flavor too. So if you, but if you marinate in buttermilk and then you roast a chicken like Samin Nosrat has in her cookbook, 
or she did on her show, or if you fry chicken, which I like to do, it will notably like almost have like a little sourness, but not unpleasant. And it just has this tenderness and moistness that's so delicious. I'm getting hungry again. Claire in Ireland wants to know, what is the best kind of pastry for apple or fruit pie? And Claire in Ireland, I would direct you back to my podcast two episodes ago because I did a whole episode called How to Make an Apple Pie and I walk you through it and I even give you a recipe. So go listen to that. Okay, Katrina from Brighton, England wants to know my thoughts on 2021 Bake Off. That's right. I've been watching The Great British Bake Off on Netflix, and I love it. Um, I actually wanted to do a recap show, but none of my friends wanted to commit to doing it, and I didn't want to do it by myself. So I'm fully caught up now. I like this season. I wish there were more gay people on it because I feel like that's such a signature of Bake Off is to have at least two to three cute gay guys on it. But we'll let that slide. Um, I am team Giuseppe. I think he's charming. I think he's lovable. I think he's so expert at what he does. And he feels like he's modest and sort of um, almost unsure of himself, but at the same time, supremely confident. So I don't know. I love that mixture. And I basically would would have loved to have eaten all of the breads that he made last week. Obviously, Jurgen is the Matt Amodio of the game so far. Matt Amodio being the one who just won, won $1.5 million on Jeopardy. Um, Jurgen, you know, he's he's charming too. I got to say, both Giuseppe and Jurgen are charming. Um, and so I'm rooting for both of them. I, I think Giuseppe has my heart a little bit more um, just because of his passion. Like he seems really passionate, whereas Jurgen's almost like scientific about it and logical and methodical. I like I like the emotion that that uh, Giuseppe brings to it. I I get a kick out of Lizzie. She's a kook. Um, Sometimes she's a little too kooky for me, but I like her. Um, Maggie is, I think she's still in. And I thought it was so funny how Paul was obsessed with the fact that she looked like Prue just because she had gray hair. And it was, it was kind of just like, okay, Paul, get over it. Like, there can be women with gray hair. They're not all the same. Um, Freya, I think, or Freya is one to watch. I think her vegan cooking is very surprising. And I think Christelle is a real contender. I think Christelle is clearly loved by the hosts. I think that, um, what's his name? Uh, Nigel is in love with her a little bit. He threw that dough at her last week. And I don't think he would have done that if he didn't love her. And I think when the hosts love somebody, you can kind of tell the producers love somebody. And I feel like she's, she's always pretty solid. You know, I think she's going to come out from behind. My real thing this season is Matt Lucas and Nigel's comedy. And I, I come into this with an open mind. I'm not somebody who's like, the show went down the tubes as soon as Mel and Sue left. But the show did kind of go down the tubes as soon as Mel and Sue left. I mean, they they brought something so authentic to the show. They It really felt like they were the heart and soul of the show. And at least at the time, I believed that they loved being there. And, and there was something soft about them. There was something very gentle, but still funny. It was like they were in on the joke with you. It was never like they were laughing at you. Matt Lucas and Nigel feels more like they're getting paid to bring some levity to this, but that... Uh, that's like I'm more conscious of the fact that this is a job for them rather than something they would organically be doing. I mean, Nigel even makes jokes about the fact he's like, I never thought I'd be doing this. And Matt makes folks jokes like I used to be an actor. And it's like, yeah, and it feels that way. So I don't know. I'm not in love with them. I kind of wish Mel and Sue would come back. But overall, I am enjoying the season and I can't wait for the next episode. Okay, Noah in New York says, what is the most overrated food trend right now? 
Well, for me, <laughs> one of them is white cookbook covers. I mean, Allison Roman's cookbook covers, I think, set this trend where if you go to the bookstore now, I feel like almost every cookbook looks like Allison Roman's cookbook. And it's like, okay, that, that was great for her cookbook, cookbook, and it was really stunning and beautiful. But I feel like it's getting a little tiresome to see that design on every cookbook. So that's one. The other for me is meal delivery kits, which I, I know took off during the pandemic. And I have so many friends who are obsessed with their meal delivery kits, including friends who actually are food writers who get them because they just don't want to have to deal with making dinner. And I totally get that. But they're so omnipresent now. I have so many friends who use Blue Apron and all that stuff. And it's like, my thing with that is it's like, you'll never really learn if you keep using those kits. And I just wish people would have the courage to start making food for themselves. I mean, maybe it's like training wheels on a bicycle. Maybe you need the meal delivery kits to just get started. And that might be true, but I just feel like they're getting a little too popular for my taste. That's just me. Don't get mad. Don't write hate mail. Okay. D from Dublin, Ireland says, wants to know what my favorite kitchen equipment is. Well, I just moved it into um, a ca- into one of my cabinets because the microwave is coming tomorrow. But my food processor, my Cuisinart food processor is my favorite piece of kitchen equipment. And for years, I had a little crappy um, Hamilton Beach one. And that was a big mistake. I would say if you are going to spend money on a piece of kitchen equipment, you can spend no better money than one on a Cuisinart because a big, hefty Cuisinart like that can stand up to pasta I, I can make you make pasta in there um Lydia Bastianich has a recipe for pasta dough that you can make in there but I've made pie dough in there which is much more delicate I use it to grate um carrots for a carrot salad I use it to shred cabbage for a coleslaw I use it to grind up parmesan cheese if I'm making a caesar salad and then I'll take the parmesan out of it and then make the dressing in the same food processor I just love it for all kinds of things pesto I mean I know you can make pesto like in a mortar and pestle but I don't know why you would do that when you could do it in a food processor I love making salsa verde in there that's where I'll take like a bunch of parsley stems and not stems yeah stems no leaves not the stems leaves and put it in there with a couple cloves of garlic some anchovies some capers sometimes some gherkins and I'll just pulse that and add maybe some Dijon mustard and some olive oil and it's delicious oh and lemon juice too so the food processor is my number one. Number two is my knife, which every cook who likes to cook needs a good knife. And I have a Vustoff knife that was sent to me for free like 10 years ago when I was a food blogger or even eight years ago. And it has like a curved um, shape to it. So it almost looks like, what does it look like? It kind of looks like a backwards letter D only like the D is cut off halfway through, if that makes sense. And I love it because it's not so expensive. You know, it's, it's probably like a $100 knife if I had to guess. So I can just keep sharpening it and sharpening it. And I don't worry that it might like wear away one day. And I have a AccuSharp knife sharpener with an electric one on the counter, which saved my butt during the pandemic because I used to get it sharpened at the farmer's market. Now I sharpen it in there and I just love sharpening and honing that knife and getting it super sharp and it's lasted me forever. So a great chef's knife. And finally, if you follow me on Instagram, you've seen this before, but I have a pasta scoop. It's like a neon green 
pasta scoop that comes from a company called Joseph Joseph. It's actually on Amazon, this product. It's called the Joseph Joseph Scoop Colander. And it's really, I got it from Italy when I went there with my parents one day. I just thought it looked kind of cool. And now I use it all the time because basically if I'm boiling string beans, if I'm boiling pasta, anything that's like in a pot that you want to lift out and not have to lift out individually here like with with tongs i just use this scoop and i scoop it all out and it works like a colander too so scoop out the pasta let it drain over the pot and then just dump it into the pan with the sauce and it's dreamy i love it elizabeth from pomona says was she was given mackerel fish it was a present from her grandma how do i cook it I have to say, Elizabeth from Pomona, from Pomona, I've never cooked mackerel, so I looked this up for you, and Melissa Clark has a recipe, so I would do her recipe. I'd read her article about it. I do love mackerel, though. It's an oily fish. It has a lot of flavor, um, and so, yeah, check out Melissa Clark's recipe and let me know how it comes out. Tamara, Tamara from Berkeley wants to know, what is my favorite season of produce? And my answer, I think it's either spring or fall, probably spring, because at least when I lived in New York, there was so much excitement when spring came around and, you know, you saw the first asparagus, you saw ramps. I remember ramps. They don't really have those here, which were like little onions that came out of the ground. And then you had sugar snap peas. I'd say sugar snap peas are my favorite vegetable in terms of like something that's seasonal that comes around once a year. I love them. They're so, they taste like spring, especially when they're super sweet and super crunchy and juicy. I love a sugar snap pea. I also love rhubarb in the spring. Making a strawberry rhubarb pie is probably my favorite pie to make. And I made one for my friends this year and they were dazzled by it. It's just like so tart, so delicious. Um, I love it. So spring is the answer. Fall, which we're in right now, I do love apple products, apple pie, pears. I'm trying to think what else you get in fall. Rutabaga, turnips, those kinds of things. You know, woodsy herbs, thyme, sage. Love all that stuff. Okay, well, we're up to my last question, which is from Megan from St. Paul. Earliest food memory. Well, my mom always says that when I was a little baby on the high chair and she was feeding me, when she, when she was done feeding me, I would like burst into tears crying because I'd be so sad that the food was over. But I don't really remember that happening. So the, the first memory I actually remember is really funny because um, my parents used to feed my brother and I at these little plastic yellow tables that were situated on a gray carpet in front of the big TV. So we would just sit there and eat and watch TV, which I, you know, is probably why I'm a TV writer today or I've written for TV. Um, and so I don't know where my, where my brother was on this particular night, but I remember my mom made me a steak or she was giving me like leftover steak from a restaurant, which was much more likely because my mom never cooked. Um, so she gave me the steak and I hated it. I thought it was so chewy and gross and she'd cut it up and she yelled at me to finish it. So when she went back into the kitchen or into her bedroom, I took the steak and I shoved it under the carpet and then I stomped all over the carpet to flatten it. And when she came back, she was so proud of me that I'd eaten the steak and I didn't say a word. And then like a week went by and I think it just started to reek in there. And, you know, at some point my mom's like, what is that smell? And it was either my dad or my mom. They lifted up the carpet and they found the steak. And I don't remember getting in trouble for it, but I just remember feeling so exposed. Um, But that's my steak story. So there you go. That's this week's episode of lunch therapy this bonus episode and again if you'd like to submit a question for a future episode give me a follow on instagram 
at Amateur Gourmet or shoot me a question, lunchtherapist at gmail.com. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And I'll see you back here on Monday where my guest is Valerie Lomas, the winner of Great British Baking Show, the American edition. And that actually that episode or that season never aired. And you'll hear all about that on Monday. All right. Well, have a great rest of your week. See you soon. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. I'm Elsie Granderson. And I'm Will Leach. Every week in The Long Game, we look at the biggest stories in sports and how they affect the world of culture and politics. You think COVID has messed up sports forever? I think sports has totally forgotten that COVID ever existed. You think legal betting is bad for sports? I know it's bad for me to bet on the Pistons. That's a very, very bad idea. <laughs> Who is the most entitled GOAT of all time? I feel like there's a hundred-way tie for first. Well, at least at first. That's why they're the GOATs. We love talking about sports. And because we love our sports, we want our sports to be better. Which is why we don't dodge those big, messy issues. And we certainly do not stick to sports. So join us for deep thoughts, great laughs, and a weekly breakdown of the biggest issues in sports. The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Find us on the ACAST app, Twitch, and wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.